Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. All right, before we get started today, I just wanted to send our best to Doug Kide and his family. I'm sure a lot of you already know if you're following Doug on social media, if you follow me on social media, unfortunately, Doug's two-year-old daughter passed away on Sunday. He put a message up on social media. Doug is such a great guy, an awesome guy. We just had him on, what, a week and a half ago, talking about Bill Belichick and the parting of the ways press conference. Can't imagine what he's been going through over the past couple of years. We talked to him about it originally when his daughter was diagnosed two years ago and they thought she was getting better at one point as Doug illustrated in the post and unfortunately things took a turn in the wrong direction a while back here so you just feel so bad this should never happen to any family no family should ever have to go through this so I just want to send our best to Doug and there is a GoFundMe page if you can and you want to donate we're going to put that in the description of the pod so just again, we're thinking of Doug and his family right now. He's one of the, our great friends of the pod. I mean, we think about the guys we have on all the time. Callahan, Doug, Kyrie, of course, the boss, Bill Simmons, B-Rob, Pina. Those are probably the guys we have on the most. So really thinking about Doug and his family right now, because I cannot imagine what they're going through. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Tyler Milliken from the Sports Hub and the Name Redacted Pod is going to join us to talk about the mess with the Red Sox. We will get into some positives, but I had to get into this more because I really can't believe what transpired over the weekend. So I'm really worried about the direction of the organization right now. So I wanted to talk to Milliken about that because he's great on the Sox. And oh, by the way, just a note on that, we recorded that part of the pod earlier. Milliken brought up James Paxson and whether or not the Red Sox would be interested in bringing him back. John Heyman late tonight reported that Paxson is working on the possibility of signing with the Dodgers. He said it's not done yet, but a possibility. So that could be another option off the board for the Red Sox because Paxton was good for them. He just could not stay healthy. So just keep that in mind when you hear us talking about the starting pitchers for the Sox or lack thereof, if you will. So we're recording this part of the pod, of course, after the Celtics beat the Mavericks. What a wild night, by the way, in the NBA. This was the anniversary of Kobe's 81 points. Joel Embiid had 70. He had 70 points. And oh, by the way, Carl Anthony Towns had 44 at halftime. He had 62. 
and somehow the Wolves lost to the Hornets. The guy had 62 and his team lost to the Charlotte Hornets. It's not like he had 62 and lost to a good team. I mean, it's tough to lose when the guy has 62. He lost to the Hornets. So incredible night in the NBA and the 70 points from Embiid, man. What a season he's having. All right, so let's get into the Celtics Mavericks situation. And before I get into the game, it would just dawned on me today. I wasn't even thinking about Kyrie Irving. I was thinking about Grant Williams, the Celtics playing against him for the first time. And Grant has not had a great season there in Dallas. I'll get to that in a second here. But Kyrie, I just remember being so angry with Kyrie and really not being a fan of Kyrie whatsoever. And now it's almost like he's just sort of out there for the Mavericks, right? Like, I don't even think about Kyrie anymore. Like when Kyrie first left the Celtics, we were all aggravated right now at some point you're like okay it's probably good that this guy is gone but he went to a stacked team at that particular point in time that of course beat the Celtics in the postseason the following year but remember Kyrie we were so upset with him because he lied he said I want to be here remember he did this whole thing in front of the season ticket holders I'll be here as long as you'll have me that was a lie we caught him talking to Kevin Durant saying two max contracts and then he lied about that he said, talk to me about my free agency in July after he had told everybody that he was going to stay there. But look at Kyrie now or stay here. I should say, look at Kyrie now. So, yeah, OK, he beat the Celtics. The Nets did. They beat the Celtics in the first playoff series that Kyrie played for when he was with the Brooklyn Nets. OK, after that, he hasn't won anything. And the Celtics have been to two conference finals and a trip to the NBA finals. They're in a much better spot now that Kyrie's not here. And Kyrie has not had a lot of success since leaving the Celtics organization. Remember, so you think about all these things that have sort of transpired. He basically ruined that Nets organization. He got that group all together. And then look at that team now. (laughs) They're a complete mess, right? So first of all, Harden left because of him. Him and Harden had issues. Part of it was he couldn't play in home games, remember, because of the whole vaccine situation in New York, where Kyrie couldn't play in home games for a while. Durant was dealing with an injury, so Harden was upset about that. You go back to 2021, he played, what, 54 games in that season. Then he ends up getting hurt. The year they beat the Celtics, he misses the end of that series against the Bucks. You go to 2022, we mentioned the whole thing with Harden. And then they trade for Ben Simmons. And in the postseason, he has this game where he goes nuclear in game one. He has 39 points. <laughs> But then the Celtics have the buzzer beater to win that game. Remember, Tatum has the buzzer beater. And the Celtics sweep him after that. The rest of the series, Kyrie 10 points, 16 points, 20 points, 16 of 43, 37.2% from the field. And he was 2 2 of 11, rather, from deep, 0 of 7 from 3. And remember that year, or the year after, I should say, last season when he got traded to Dallas. Remember, he was suspended for a while that season. And he was, like, upset with the situation there. So Kevin Durant gets traded to, of course, Phoenix. Kyrie went to Dallas. That whole situation was a mess. So he tried to put together the super team that just did not work. So since he's left the Celtics, look at how the Celtics have recovered from losing Kyrie Irving. Look at how the Nets have recovered. That Ben Simmons trade is horrible for them. Not to mention the fact they still owe Rockets picks. They did everything they could to try to appease Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and that organization was ruined. So imagine if the Celtics had stayed in the Kyrie Irving business. It would be a complete dumpster fire. So now, like, I had all these emotions with Kyrie as a fan. Like, I was pissed off. I was pissed off how he performed in that series against the Bucs. 
Remember when he was telling guys, hey, I got Giannis? Like he was trying to cover Giannis one on one. It's like, what's going on? Haven't played defense all year. Now you want to guard Giannis. And he kept telling us during that season that it's all good. Just wait until the playoffs. Like Kyrie was going to be the savior. And I got to be honest, at times I bought into it. I'm like, hey, this is the guy that hit the three over Steph Curry in the NBA Finals. One of the biggest shots in the history of the NBA. I'm buying into it. And then he let us all down. So I was pissed off for years with Kyrie. And now I'm just like, I almost forgot he was on the Mavericks. Now, I mean, once we got close to game time, you know he's on the team, but I almost forgot. And you think about this game tonight, he's definitely not one of the top three players in the game. Tatum's better, Jalen's better, Luka's better. Even in this game tonight, I mean, he got some points in this one, right? He finishes with, what, 23, but he took 20 shots to get there. I mean, Tim Hardaway had 20 points on seven less shots. Kyrie's, he's still a good player, but he's just kind of, He's almost an irrelevant player in the NBA now because he's playing for this Dallas team that cannot win a championship, how it's currently constructed. They are brutal defensively. We'll see what happens. Like maybe Kyrie demands another trade, even though he signed an extension there. But man, I mean, the guy to me, like for somebody that we as a fan base were so upset with, he's almost just like, I, I don't even care about him anymore. Anyway, Grant, by the way, he was atrocious in this game. How about Jason Tatum blocking him at the end of the half on the heave and I'm just so, sort of giving Grant a look. Grant was bad. He finished this game 1 of 5, 0 of 4. Since the start of December, he is not shooting it well at all. So prior to tonight, since the start of December, 38.5% from the field, 30.1% from three. And he's not helping the team in terms of from an impact perspective. Via cleaning the glass on the season, the on-off differential minus 14. That ranks in the sixth percentile. He started off the season well for them, but he has just completely gone in the wrong direction. I thought he was, quite frankly, terrible in this game. And I like Grant as a player. Just he has not been good for that team. All right. So getting to the Celtics portion of that, because I wanted to get that off my chest. It's just like I just came to the realization today, like, geez, I don't even care about Kyrie. I was thinking about Grant more than Kyrie. So tonight, one thing that sticks out to me is obviously there was no Porzingis. And the Rockets game, Alan Drew got the night off. Derek White a little banged up last week, so they gave him the night off against San Antonio. But who else can do this? Like, what other team in the NBA can do this where they're so deep in terms of their top six, six guys? They have so much talent on the top end where you're, you can just say, hey, let's give a guy a night off, right? And the Celtics have built up this lead in the Eastern Conference as well. But even Philly, that Philly's a really good team. They're not just going to be like, hey, uh, tonight we're going to give Tyrese a night off. And Bean only sits now when he's actually dealing with an injury, right? Same thing about like the Bucks. They can't just give Dame a night off. They certainly can't give Giannis a night off or they'll get the shit beat out of uh, beat out of them like they did against Cleveland, right? I guess Miami would be the only team that can do it. But when Jimmy Butler sits, it's not because they're sitting him. It's because he's actually dealing with injuries. The Mi Miami's just a weird team. But again, my point is they can just say, all right, we gave Porzingis. Monday off, we gave Al and Drew Sunday off, and now we don't play again until Miami at home. And Porzingis is so important for that matchup because of the fact that if you think about it, he's the big difference. And I would argue that part of the reason the Celtics got Porzingis is Miami because Bam was so versatile for them defensively and could switch everything. Now you can't switch smaller defenders onto Kristaps Porzingis. So it's just a huge advantage that the Celtics now have in a potential playoff series against Miami and we'll get another preview of that coming up on Thursday night which I can't wait for it's going to be an awesome game so I would just say from that perspective like 
the fact that they can sit some of these guys, it's good long-term, right? So, okay, we don't get to see Porzingis play tonight. You still win the game. And the most important thing as it pertains to both Porzingis and Al is getting these guys to the finish line healthy. So I certainly think this helps when it comes to that. By the way, on Porzingis real quickly before we get into this game more specifically, in January, he's at 18.3 points per game, 2.2 blocks per game. He's shooting 52% from the field. He's 17 of 39 from deep, 43.6%. I get it's a small sample size, but pre-January, he was 32.3%. Now, he still gets guarded out there no matter what, but the fact that he's lighting it up from three-point territory now is huge for the Celtics team as well. All right. By the way, I thought Missoula said something interesting before the game. He said, the one thing we talk about, we showed it on our screen the other day. The NBA is full of narratives. You have a choice to fall into a narrative at any time. Dog days of January. It's the second night of a back-to-back. There's always a narrative to latch on to. We have to make the choice every day to play the right way. And most of the time we do that, sometimes we don't. Now, the one game that they struggled with was... Milwaukee were, of course, second night of a back-to-back, and they didn't hit any shots. But I like that Missoula is saying this. It's like, okay, teams all the time can say, hey, this is a scheduled loss. He doesn't want the Celtics to do that, right? And he wants them to take on the challenge every night. I think that's a really, really good message because so many times in the NBA, you can just chalk it up and be like, ah, second night of a back-to-back, especially this one. Like, this is the perfect time to send this message because the Celtics play on Sunday night in Houston. The Dallas Mavericks have not played... Since last Wednesday, one of their games was postponed due to, unfortunately, the passing of one of the Warriors' assistant coaches. So they haven't played in a while. And the Celtics, it looked a little bit iffy there in the first quarter. And they came out and they certainly took it to the Mavericks and were the clear better team, even though the Mavericks had a huge rest advantage over the Celtics. So I like that message that Missoula is sending to the team. I think it's a smart thing to say. I'm sure... Kendrick Perkins is going to find something wrong with it, but I certainly like that message. Okay, the stars were awesome in this game without Porzingis, right? Like, this is an old school Tatum and Jalen Brown are going to outplay the other duo like we've seen in the past. I thought Jalen was awesome. He abused Luka at times during this game to the point where he dropped him at one point. Now, Luka did get his buckets on the other end. Like, Luka had a huge night from... A statistical perspective, he had 33 points, but he did it on 30 shots. He had a bunch of rebounds in this game as well. But I thought at least Jalen, like he gave him trouble. Like, yeah, Lucas scored a ton of points, but the fact that you could just go one-on-one with Jalen, and I think this is something where Jalen said after the game, he's one of the best defenders in the league. I, I disagree with that, but he's been much better defensively this season. And the other thing that I would say, even though he puts up these points, does Luca? Jalen, I thought in some sense, was the better player overall because what he did to Luka on the other side, I'm not saying that he's better than Luka. I just thought that Jalen had an awesome game from start to finish in this one, overwhelmed some guys with his physicality. But the other thing is, we saw Tatum do this against the Thunder, right? When he said, I'll take on Shea. That happened at the end of the game. Tonight, you look around the Celtics team, you start to think about, all right, who's the best matchup against Luka? You could argue Tatum. You could also look at Drew, but Drew's giving up some size, and Luka really does take advantage of guys that he has a height advantage over. Now, Drew's one of the best defenders over the past 10 years or so, but that would even be a difficult matchup for Drew. So Jalen took it on. I thought he did a reasonable job. Luka scored his points, but he had to do it on high volume, right? So I would look at some of the stuff Jalen did in this game. I talk about the physicality. He had 20 points in the paint, and he had seven made free throws. Giannis is the only guy this season that's over 20 points per game in the paint. This is something that... We love when Jalen does that. 
That upper paint area, I talked about the fact that since the start of December, he's basically been the most efficient, one of the top three most efficient guys in that area. He was seven of eight in that area tonight, and he, he was awesome. I mean, you start to think about some of the plays he had whenever Kyrie was on him. He had a hard drive past Kyrie to make it 47-37. And then right after that, the next possession down the court, he dropped Luka. And he had that little behind-the-back dribble, and Luka just went down. Next possession after that, he gets Luka in the air and one jumper. So that's what I'm talking about. Is Yeah, Luka had his points on Jalen, but on the flip side of that, he did it to Luka, right? Like, at the end of the game, he has this awesome block on Kleber when it's 119, or 109 to 98, rather. And then on the other side, he walks down Luka, hits that little, like, elbow jumper to make it 113, 103 and sort of isolates that thing. He had a fadeaway mid-ranger over Hardaway at the end of the game too, where he just kind of stared and laughed at Hardaway. They were kind of going back and forth. So I thought Jalen, he was awesome in this game. And Tatum, he was awesome too. I mean, Tatum is a plus 27 in this one. He had been struggling shooting the ball the last four games. He was 29 of 81, 35.8%, six of 28 from deep, 21.4%. And this is after he had that great stretch where he was shooting the best he has all season long for about a 15-game stretch. Now, only 2 of 8 from deep tonight, but he was 11 of 21 overall. And the big thing with Tatum in this game is he took 17 free throws. Jalen and Tatum combined take 28 free throws in this game. Embiid leads the league at 12.2 attempts. And if you think about it, Embiid took 23 tonight, but Tatum took 17 free throws. I mean, that's huge. That's when the Mavs didn't have anybody that they could put on Tatum. Like, it was crystal clear from the beginning of the game. They don't have a wing defender that they can throw at a guy like Jason Tatum, so he goes for 38 points. I Just think about it. Early in this game, the first quarter, the Celtics are not shooting the ball well at all. And it was basically Tatum just was the reason that they were in this game in the first quarter where gets Kyrie on a switch, drives, gets to the line. Gets Luka on him, drives, gets to the line. Gets Kleber on him, switch, lefty finish. Post Kyrie, gets an and one, makes it 24 to 22. Then he goes past Grant, hits a floater, make it 26-24. So first quarter, he's 5 of 5 from the line, 13 points. That's what you need from your star player when you're playing the second night of a back-to-back. You need him to bring the energy. He certainly did in this one. Later on in the game, elbow jumper. He found Pritchard for an open three. Pass Grant, gets to the free throw line. Swatted Grant at the end of the half. We mentioned that one. And then in the second half, gets Kyrie on him again, gets to the free throw line. Elbow jumper over Kleber, drive, finish, transition layup, transition layup, like all this stuff. Short corner mid-ranger, 113-105. He has this unbelievable block on Hardaway on a jump shot, then gets to the line on the other side when they have to follow, makes it 115-105. So I think the thing that jumped off the screen with both Jalen and Jason Tatum tonight is they were overwhelming for the Mavericks from a physicality standpoint. And they can do this a lot, so I thought both those guys were really great in this game tonight. And really, you needed them to be great, especially with Porzingis out of the lineup. These guys are going to have to do it. They were going to have to set the tone, bring the energy, and I felt they brought it on both ends. One note on Al Horford, who had three threes in this game tonight. He was three of six. He is now 20 of 39, 51.3% in the month of January. So after a slow start to the season, Al shot the ball well in December too, but he's red hot this month. And then Drew Holiday hit five threes as well. He's quietly having an outstanding shooting season. He's now 82 of 196 overall from deep. That's 41.8%. So he's almost 42% on the season. So yeah, he's not getting the volume he's gotten in the past, but when he gets his opportunities to hit open shots, he certainly hit him. Hit hit a couple of pull-ups tonight too. 
Oh, by the way, I should mention the Bees. They went over Winnipeg 4-1. Winnipeg is in first place in the Central. So they've beaten Colorado and Winnipeg in the past week or less than a week. They played Colorado on Thursday night. And by the way, and of course, in between there, they beat Montreal 9-4. Interesting note on this one. The Jets had gone 35 straight games without giving up four goals. The Bees with the Marshawn empty netter get to four in this game tonight. So that's, a, that's an elite defensive team that the Bruins are able to put up four goals on. Loco gets the first goal on a feed from Frederick after Frederick got a rebound. And then the second goal, Coyle had deflection off the Lindholm shot. Uh, Coyle, a two-point night. Uh, that was a great goal by him. And Marshawn had the empty, empty netter in this one. And now if you look at Coyle, we mentioned that he was creeping up on his career high for the Bruins. He now has 17 goals on the season. Most he's had with the Bruins, 16 in each of the last two seasons. DeBrusque had the third goal of the game where that was on a shorthanded opportunity off a rebound. And if you look at DeBrusque, he now has eight goals in his last 13 games. He had four in his first 32. And look, they were doing some different things with him. But even this one, I mean, this is on the PK. This is on the penalty kill, of course. He's been... Remember early in the season, he was on the third line, like they were asking him to do different things than he's done in the past. He was really good at this game, and he's been, quite frankly, on fire. So now the Bees, you think about this, a five-game winning streak. They have points in 10 straight games. Remember, they kept going to overtime and losing or losing in a shootout, but still, 10 straight games to the point, five-game winning streak. And look at what they did to this Jets team. Just four high-danger chances for the Jets on five-on-five. So impressive win for the Bruins as well. I mean, it's a fun night. You get the get the Bruins, you get the Celtics, both teams with a win. I should have thought about this before. I should have done a little Boston parlay from our friends with FanDuel. I did not think of that. I should have done that tonight. So the Bees play again on Wednesday. They'll get Carolina. But fun night for a Boston sports fan. Good night. The Red Sox may stink right now. The Patriots, we're still trying to figure out who their offensive coordinator is going to be. Questions with both those organizations. The Bruins and the Celtics, of course, both in a good spot. That was a lot of fun. Nice little Monday, watching a little hoops, watching a little hockey. Love it. All right, coming up next, something that's not fun, the Boston Red Sox. We'll talk about them next with Tyler Milliken. If you've been watching the NFL playoffs from the sidelines, there's still time to get in the game with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. New customers bet this Sunday's conference championship games with $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. FanDuel has so many ways for you to pick up a W. All right, so I'm looking at this, the same game parlay plus for plus 320. I like the Chiefs on the money line to beat the Ravens. Isaiah Pacheco, an anytime touchdown that continues to deliver for us. And then Christian McCaffrey, an anytime touchdown in the NFC Championship game. McCaffrey, he scores a touchdown basically every game he plays in. So Pacheco touchdown, McCaffrey touchdown, Chiefs on the money line. You can get that for plus 320. So if you want to follow my picks, go to FanDuel right now. New customers get started with $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. Just visit FanDuel.com Pike to join today. That's FanDuel.com Pike. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com RG. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from 98.5 The Sports Sub, part of Zoe and Bertrand, part of the Baseball Hour as well, and the name reducted pod, it is Tyler Milliken. Milliken, thanks for coming back, man. How are you? 
I'm good. I'm good. I wish I could say the Red Sox were in a better state right now than last time we <laughs> talked. But, you know, this is life. This is what it is. I'm getting gray hairs. This is what they're doing to me. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the Sox, I got to ask you. So we have the disaster, of course, of winter weekend. But on your show last Friday, Zoe said that he heard Mac Jones could be back as the Patriots quarterback in 2024. So this was after Mac was, of course, at Gerard Mayo's press conference. And then Mike Reese writes about it on Sunday. I talked about it on my Sunday pod. Zoe was the first guy to kind of put this out there. So what's going on, man? I just, I can't watch Mac Jones play quarterback again. Like, is is there momentum? Zoe thinks there's momentum towards this? It's interesting, right? I think you kind of look at Mac Jones showing up to the press conference, right? Not many other guys really there. And then Greg or Greg Bedard's report follows up just a couple days later saying maybe some of the teammates weren't super happy about that look, especially because Mac had his locker cleaned out at the very end of season. Uh, but with Zoe, you know, Zoe always says he's not a reporter. He's not putting anything out there like that. But I think as you start to talk Marvin Harrison Jr. and what Gerard Mayo's philosophies are, he seems to have no problem baiting people right now with those draft questions about quarterbacks and stuff, yeah. you know, Today going on EEI and mentioning, well, offensive line is really important. Wide receiver is really important. But I don't think it's out of question because we know with the way the Patriots operate, as bad as Bailey Zappi was, right? Was there much of a difference between Mac Jones? No, he was just a little bit more confident, had a little bit more faith. I think really where you look at Mac Jones and you make the connection is if Josh McDaniels returns. And going off Rap Sheet's most recent report kind of saying, looks like he's following Bill wherever he goes. I have a hard time seeing it at this point. I think even for Mac Jones, trying to run that back with these fans at Gillette, with just the organization as a whole, there's too much damage done already. Yeah, give me Nick Haley and give me Jaden Daniels, and we're good. Let's roll this thing out. Let's start from the beginning. Zach Robinson would be interesting, too, but it feels like he's got all these other opportunities. Other teams are looking at him, so maybe he's the hotter commodity, so to speak. But I would like Haley to return after he spent a couple of years with McVay, because that usually works out pretty well. All right, so Milliken, let's get into the Sox, because... Winter weekend was something, man, and I don't know how many times Tom Warner is going to try to basically explain his full throttle comment. Now, he says he also brings it to his own life, the full throttle thing. It's not just part of the Red Sox philosophy. It's part of his own life, which is hilarious. He also mentioned, hey, they needed to improve defensively. And guess what? Full throttle can also include the coaching staff. Now, earlier this offseason, he referenced you need players with high war when he referenced the full throttle comment, right? So you literally told us, if you're Tom Warner, that you needed players with high war, which, hey, guess what? Everybody in the sport agrees with. But anyway, good getting baseball back to my, players. Wow. Yeah, crazy. You need good players, right? So the players they picked up, Lucas Giolito, one win above replacement, Fangrass version of war. That was 62nd of 67 starters with at least 140 innings. So that's not particularly great. Although I like the idea of bringing in an innings eater. Like in a vacuum, I don't dislike the Lucas Giolito move. I know there were some issues with this fastball, but that's fine. You want to go out there and give me innings? I'm good with that. Somebody in the middle of the rotation. The other guy they picked up was Tyler O'Neill. That wasn't even a full win above replacement because, of course, he was dealing with injuries. They're hoping they can get him back to the guy in 2021 that hit a bunch of home runs, hit 34, Hit one at Fenway Park. Like, that's what they're hoping for, right? But both those guys, Giolito is more of a proven guy that you know he's going to at least give you innings. But the whole point about this is the thing that I don't really understand here is the owner referencing high war players, and these are the main guys that you brought in. So now you look like a liar with the comments that you made. And it just feels like to me, 
Every time he tries to explain the full throttle comment, I thought it was bad when he tried to explain it to Sean McAdam. And then he goes ahead and he doubles down on it at Winter Weekend. I just, this to me was the most aggravating part uh, out of the whole thing is him trying to explain this stuff and just getting caught up in a lie. But to you, what was your most aggravating part of sort of the Winter Weekend situation and some of the comments that came via ownership? I think the Sam Kennedy one was the one that definitely rang the loudest, the lowering of payroll, right? We're going to, we're expected likely was the phrase he used that will have a lower payroll than we did the previous year, but going off what Tom Warner and it's just the constant idea that, you know, walking these things back and trying to paint a picture that, well, the full throttle comment was just something sports radio and Twitter and all these different places turned around and tried to, you know, make it seem like it was something it wasn't. Well, that quote you just read talking about needing players with high war, they were minutes apart, Tom Warner. They were minutes apart. <laughs> Don't pretend like one thing doesn't exist. And it's that constant contradictory statements from him, Sam Kennedy. You know, Tom Warner goes on the radio and he makes it a point to say, you know, almost showing off. I talked to someone in the front office. They told me with better defense, you know, we're nine, 10 wins better. You know, we would have been 88 wins, 89 wins. Well, okay, so the fact that you're now lowering your payroll when you actually believe the true talent of this team before anything this season or this offseason was 88 to 89 wins, you're deciding to wait for the Meyer, Teal, Anthony window, and you're an 88-win team in your head? That makes it an even more absurd statement to try and say you're waiting for those three prospects. Three prospects who, you know, hand up. I'm a prospect hugger. Everyone knows it. I'm very stingy about deals. The truth is, with these three kids, best case scenario, they're up in September. Look at what happened to Marcel Meyer this year. Has a shoulder injury, sidetracks him, right? Who knows? Anything could happen this year. Someone hits a snag. Roman Anthony's 19 years old, getting to double A. What if he hits a wall? Well, just when they get up here, do you think they're going to be stars immediately? I remember Xander Bogart, who, yes, 2013, shows up at the end, plays a big role in the playoffs. 2014? They were booing him at Fenway Park when he wasn't turning into the player everyone had hoped or, you know, immediately. Jaron Duran, everyone had wrote Jaron Duran off. No one even wanted to hear his yeah. name a year ago. And then he shows up and shows he's a building block once again. So not only are you putting the pressure on these guys to be a savior, you're telling them they need to do it immediately. That's what you're hoping for here. And that is what bothers me because it feels like somewhat of a discrediting to the young core you have at the big league level. Uh, don't talk to me like I didn't watch Tristan Casas and Brian Bayo, Cutter Crawford, Jaron Duran, you know, even a Will Ura Abreu, right? Late in the season, all show to be those young building blocks. Don't tell me or talk to me like the Red Sox weren't right in the wild card race at the trade deadline. You know, those are the things that bother me. We're talking like this is a 60 win team here. This is not what it was. And that's why this front office felt like they were going to spend money. Alex Spear had it on that recent Baseball America podcast saying, yeah, the whole front office was kind of getting dialed up. Jared's talked about it on his podcast. Multiple people in that organization who are pushing it out there. No problem saying, hey, watch, watch what's about to happen. So something changed. Where's the philosophy difference? Craig Breslow, you were saying no financial restrictions. Now it's a whole new outlook. Where does that come from? Right. That That's the thing that pisses me off is you set our expectations up like you were ready to do something big. And you're completely right, too, on the Sam Kennedy one, because Sam Kennedy legitimately said, I don't know why other teams talk about payroll. And then he comes out and says, our payroll is going to be lower. I, I don't even understand or comprehend why he would do that. And for a guy that is like the one dude that speaks to the media out of that group, I don't understand how he continues to get, he's getting worse at, at it as time goes on. And so the other thing I think about, like specifically with this ownership group, 
first of all, it's almost amazing to me that this winter weekend could be worse than last year's winter weekend. And I would rank this one as worse, which is, I, I still cannot believe that it was worse than last year, especially when you took some of the elements away. And then secondarily, this ownership group won four World Series. They ended a curse. And for now, the majority of the fan base to dislike this ownership group, that's an achievement in and of itself that you've now gotten to this level. And so I don't know what it is like that. It feels like to me, and I've said this on multiple occasions, it's almost, and I tried to fight it for a while because I'm so grateful for what they did to this organization. Me and what too. they did. They, I mean, they they were awesome for so many years, but now it's like, it's almost just a piece of the portfolio. It's a piece of what they do in the business world. And I just feel like the only logical conclusion that you can draw, I mean, John Henry wasn't there because he had a previous obligation. I mean, that's ridiculous to me. So the only thing you can draw is they just don't care as much as they once did. And if that's the case, I know that they're making a ton of money off the Red Sox. So it's not like, and they were asked about selling the team. They have no interest in selling a team because of the money. And that's just, it's a tough thing for the fan base to deal with because I mean, I make the comparison with Wick, where Wick this past offseason's like, hey, um, so this Drew Holiday guy, we're going to go into the second apron. If we get him, does he help us win a championship? Yeah, go ahead. And I get it. The Celtics are in a closer spot to winning right now than the Red Sox are. But that's how the Red Sox used to be. Oh, does this guy help us win a championship? Let's go do it. They were they were that team. And that's the stuff you were pushing. Those were the narratives. When you traded Mookie Betts, what was the justification you told this fan base? Hey. We want to be like the Dodgers. You don't have to worry about Xander. You don't have to worry about Raphael Devers. They're going to be here. This is so we can be like those teams, right? And we look at the Dodgers today. They're just shattering, you know, all these financial different things going on right now. 300 million, not thinking twice about it. And there's no focus on them getting under the luxury tax anytime soon. It used to be a two-year cycle. We saw it with many teams that kind of got underneath it and understood what it was. The Yankees are doing the same thing as the Dodgers right now. So when you consistently sell, you know, these kind of visions to people or give them your word that, you know, then Xander Bogars is a top priority and then he ends up slipping right through your fingers. Sam Kennedy, you're telling me you're giving me your word that you're trying as hard as you can. The luxury tax went up to 237 million and you're spending less just from a standpoint. And you should be going over the luxury tax this year. You should be trying to push those chips in just from the standpoint of doing everything, even in the parameters you have. If you said, Really, just what we're hearing from Craig Breslow, he doesn't believe we should go over, or John Henry, whatever it may be. You would at least spend up to that 237, right? You don't have to go over. You should, but that's doing the bare minimum for Red Sox fans everywhere when you charge the highest ticket prices in all of baseball. It is the most expensive experience. Just spend up until what you can spend. If that is what you can offer, they're not even willing to do that. And that's where I sit there and say, well, how bad did the Red Sox want to win when at the trade deadline, you were that close to a wild card spot and you drew a line in the sand saying you can't spend more than 225 million. I was a Heim Bloom guy. I will be the first one to tell you. I think Breslow has done some things that Heim was hesitant to do or a little too careful about the Verdugo trade, the sale trade, two deals that we know he was talking one with the Rangers, uh, Verdugo with the Marlins, right? Or a couple other clubs at the time we heard kind of going back and forth. All right. Well, Craig Breslow goes and makes those moves credit to him. But clearly, you weren't all in on even trying to win last year if you weren't willing to let him add money. And that's where fans are going to get upset because it's 2024. This isn't 2022. This isn't 2021 where they love to bring that up at winter weekend saying, well, no one had any complaints in 2021. Well, you know why? Because everyone understood where you were going. It was why in 2022, even though you should have got under the luxury tax at the deadline, you were willing to go over it. It was a build up to that point. 
now you're telling them, eh, at least this season, we're taking another step back, just like we told you a year ago, and it might be another year after that. That's crazy. It's ignoring you know, a baseball team and acting like they're a 60-win team. You're the Orioles. You can't spend money. The whole point of being the Boston Red Sox is you're not supposed to have significant lulls like this. A year, maybe two at best, okay. We're going on half a decade now. Well, yeah, and the other part that you mentioned, too, when you referenced the student tickets. and Yeah, that's, oh, the that, Fenway experience. Woo! Yeah, it, and those aren't your main fans, right? Like, most fans are not younger, right? Like, the student tickets are going to people that want to go there and have fun, and I'm all for that. Like, I, I like going to Fenway and having a good time and all that, but that's not your base fan base. So when you say, like, hey, they, we have these student tickets, it's like the guy that is in his early 40s and wants to bring his kids to the game. He's going there to watch a baseball game, have fun with his kids, but he's not getting cheaper tickets. We're talking about 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds that are in college. So it, it's not really the same thing when he referenced like, oh, the student tickets. Yeah, because all those people have been the diehard Red Sox fans over the years. Right. So that that to me is just sort of miscalculating the situation when he answers that way. It just I just can't believe how bad they are at this, and they've been doing it for so long. It's incredible to me. Like, every message they put out this weekend was the wrong message. Like, they, they can't even have a unified uh, unified front on what they want to say. It's it's unbelievable. Like, they can't even lie correctly. No, and they put on these acts. You know, Tom Warner, he takes, you know, some questions with the media, whatever. In the middle of Sam Kennedy and Craig Breslow getting grilled, he walks out. John Henry... You know, Craig Breslow's introductory press conference. We're talking about the guy you were hiring to lead the Boston Red Sox from a baseball perspective. You were 20 minutes late. You, you couldn't yeah. even be on time to that. Like, that's the kind of consistent behavior here. And there's only so many times where you get the benefit of the doubt. And obviously, when the baseball team isn't successful, it makes it worse. But Sam Kennedy's getting on radio and saying, if you believe or you're talking about the Red Sox not trying as hard as they can be, you're a liar. You're calling people... Your fans, a large portion of your fan base, media, Ken Rosenthal, has been slamming them all offseason. You're calling them a liar, yet you're not using all your financial power that you have in front of you. That's not lie. Like, if anything, there's a history. You can check the receipts, as we mentioned, you know, Bogarts, uh, trying to be like the Dodgers, all these different things, full throttle. You are lying to us. And it's the most classic example. And we've seen Kennedy get really riled up the last two times he's met with the media. It was at the end of the year press conference when people said, do people really want this job? And he starts going nuts. He's like, this is the Boston Red right. Sox. If you don't want to be here, like you're not right for the job. Okay, sure. Well, look at how you're acting. I, I have a real feeling when you were talking to all these other execs, right? And you said, oh, this is kind of where we're at. They probably said, yeah, I'm good. I'm not trying to be a mid-market team. I'm trying to be the Red Sox if you're going to hire me. Right. That's the, that, that's the problem. And then you lash out, you know, yesterday saying, you know, people are a liar or lying. Like no one's lying. This is the consensus opinion here. How about you own that and try to disprove it instead of immediately attacking people? But that tells you they know they're they know there's something not adding up here. When you catch a liar in their lies, they get extremely defensive. Right. And the problem with Sam Kennedy is he doesn't realize the damage they had done to that job, right? Like if this was 10 or 15 years ago, like after Theo decided to move on, everybody would have wanted that job. But the way that they've handled these guys that have won World Series in some cases in Dave Dombrowski, right? The way that they handle Dave Dombrowski. And then you only give Haim a couple of years. Whether or not you want to criticize a lot of the moves that Haim made, that's fine. But the point being is your job becomes a lot less intriguing when you're in a position when you're firing these guys right away. So I don't think he realized it when he made that comment. I think he thought it was just going to be like, 
hey, we can have the top tier guys out there, but none of the top tier guys out there are going to be like, hey, I want that gig because there's no job security with that. I mean, Dave Dombrowski, and look, I understand about he doesn't build up a farm system, although Casas is pretty good, Bayo is pretty good. It's like, this guy's going to the Hall of Fame. He's an unbelievable executive. And you basically said that the problem in 2019 was him. And you blame the whole thing on him. Like the sale contract was all blamed on him when ownership basically acknowledged, hey, we bungled the John Lester situation. That's how you treat a guy that had just won three division championships and had won a World Series. So why, like the fact that they thought this was going to be an intriguing job, though, though the only reason it is would have been intriguing is where the farm system was at, right? The farm system that Heim Bloom, to his credit, has built back up. That's why the job is intriguing, right? And you're in a major market, although we're not acting like a major market. So I think their whole idea of who they are, I think they still think they're the organization that they were five, six years ago when they were winning left and right, and it was just going to be an easy fix. And I think where Sam Kennedy in this conversation with Dave Dombrowski gets really interesting is we know Dave Dombrowski held them to the fire and made them pay for sale, right? Like that, that was a major thing. They were very awkward about it, but they caved in partially due to that John Lester history. They signed that deal. Ultimately, when it doesn't work out and they think the writing's on the wall, they fired Dombrowski less than 12 months after winning a World Series. You look at the hirings of Bloom and Craig Breslow. Two first-time guys leading a front office that don't have the kind of credibility that Dave Dombrowski, who could walk in, you know, where Tom Warner is, where all these different guys were and say, my nuts are on the table. Look at my resume. I'm telling you what I think we have to do to win. How are you going to fight that, right? Like, There's a reason I'm going to the Hall of Fame. Well, then you hire a Heim Bloom and a Craig Breslow who do have those strengths in building up, you know, infrastructure and building up a farm system. Great. Well, they're not going to probably have the same push or feel like they have the same credibility to hold John Henry to the fire in certain ways to force him to make certain deals. Right. And I think that's where we talk about Larry Lucchino a lot as someone who was very important over those years. And you can read about it, you know, in all the countless books over the years about how much he would push. And he felt like maybe sometimes he was the voice that could get things over the hump. Well, now today, Sam Kennedy fills those shoes. And if Sam Kennedy is just working as a mouthpiece and we know with Sam Kennedy, he wasn't around Fenway as much this past year. That's been mentioned by multiple people now. So he's following the same footsteps as the John Henry's of the world, kind of going farther and farther away from the public. Well, okay, you're hiding. Clearly, there's not a big push happening. And John Henry has no problem hiring first time guys that probably don't feel like they have the ability to push him like they need to. That's where it falls back on. At the end of the day, you always turn your eyes to John Henry and Tom Warner, but it's clear there's a lot of things that aren't working right in that system right now, and they're not in step. They can say they're in step. You're saying different things every time you talk. That just shows what it is. That's a really good note because Dave Dombrowski is going to convince, convince ownership to pay those guys, and you look at their last two hirings, they knew by hiring those two guys that they weren't going to face that same pressure that they were facing from Dave Dombrowski. And look, it's part of the job as being the head executive, but having to fight so much to pay these guys, especially considering, I mean, Sam Kennedy legitimately said when they were asked about Yamamoto, the offer wasn't good enough. Like he actually <laughs> ad admitted that, which I, I can't it, believe they, they actually it, would Tom Warner, say that. It, which is so embarrassing. And Tom Warner in that McAdam article, so sad saying, yeah, you know, he just picked another team. Did he have a plan B, C, D, E, F? Was it just hey, it's Yamamoto or Boston. We're going to just throw our hands up. Like at the end of the day, we're sitting here and Jordan Montgomery's still on the market, who I think right. a lot of people would say is a good fit. You've basically told everyone like, yeah, don't even think about it. Sorry, we're not even going to try. Like that is done. That is out. 
we're just moving forward where we're at. Oh, and by the way, we're still trying to shed salary. So Kenley Jansen, does anyone want him? Right. It's it's interesting, too, because the Boris situation, he's kind of controlling the market here. It looks like Montgomery wants a long term deal. So we'll see where that deal ends up. But yeah, them acting like there aren't other solutions out there is a little bit crazy. But I thought it was interesting that Andrew Bailey was asked if they needed to add to the rotation. And he said, quote, if our industry doesn't view our pitching staff individually at higher tiers, I just didn't do my job. And look, I totally understand what he's saying here. It's like, OK, what is he supposed to say? Hey, yeah, you know, you're not guys, we act- those guys. Yeah, right. We really need to add a front end of the rotation guy to this group. And to Bailey's credit, like you look at the Giants when he was there the past four seasons, they're number one in FIP, home runs per nine, they're number one. Now, of course, they have an advantage they're playing there, but ground ball rate is the highest. It does help you when you have a guy like Logan Webb that gets a ton of ground balls. Launch angle, they were first. Barrel percentage, they were first. And we know Breslow's background in Chicago, all the stuff that he did with those young pitchers, all those guys improved under Craig Breslow. So I'm excited about, and they bring in Bodie as well, the founder of Driveline. So they have a lot, they've, they've put a lot of resources into the pitching department this offseason, but, and all that is great. And I'm excited about that portion of it. I think like down the road with this group, they're going to continue. And that's the main thing they needed. They need to develop young pitchers within the organization. But at the same time, you need some help this year on this current team. And that's the biggest fear I have is that this is the rotation they're going into the season with, and they're not going to add a guy. Now, the Marlins and the Mariners have young guys that maybe you could go after, but it's going to cost you a lot to go after them. Now, Breslow has talked about trading position players to get acquire somebody like that. If you don't want to go the Montgomery route, as we talked about earlier, which it doesn't really feel like the Red Sox want to. Now, it's also been put out there that they don't really want to go after like a shorter term guy that only has a year remaining on his contract. So that's a very specific thing they have. So that's why I just get worried. Like, I don't see them landing one of these young starting pitchers across the league. So as optimistic as I can be about the future, we went through 2020 COVID year, bad, doesn't really matter, right? Like whatever, no big deal. 2021, you make the playoffs and I feel like you were starting to win back the fan base. We were excited again, right? Because 19 was not great coming off the World Series. But now we're talking about a terrible 2022 and a 2023 that was bad. Like you have to be competitive again because I mean, that was pathetic what was going on in Fenway at the end of the season last season. So I just hope that they would add something, but I just, I don't really see it at this particular point in time. It's hard. And when you look at where the Red Sox are at salary wise, they're just above 200 million. They got a little over 35 million before the luxury tax. So there's no reason why even on a cheaper side, you can't go say, hey, James Paxson, who say what you will about James Paxson. I know that last month is what people remember. He was one of the better pitchers in the American League. You know, those prior two months, he was keeping your rotation afloat when it was basically three guys. But hearing the way they've really kind of pushed Nick Pavetta this offseason, and I don't think that's an entirely wrong thing. What he did with the sweeper where he was top 10 in just about every underlying pitching stat and in even ERA, he was great across the board uh, from that point forward around May 28th when he added it. But you're talking up Garrett Whitlock as a starter again. We're getting all the look at his body. Look at how he looked at winter or at the you know winter weekend. He's all buffed up. He kind of is a lot different than the guy he was a year ago coming off hip surgery. Just where I kind of think the Red Sox are right now is we've heard from Alex Spear. They don't want to trade any of the top three. So Teal, Meyer, Anthony, cross off Jesus Lazardo. I'd say cross off just about every arm on the Mariners as well, because I yeah. think the way they're going to kind of hold on to those guys is tough. The one that does stick out to me is Edward Cabrera, who 
you know, you pull up the savant page and your jaw will drop. It, it's right across the board. He just needs help throwing strikes. Yes. And we know at the trade deadline this past year, uh, Justin Turner, apparently for Cabrera, was on the table to some degree. Well, now you have some pieces, and I think this is where Breslow really needs to kind of earn his money because we know it's not throwing money on the table, right? It's, all right, well, we have a Nick York who we went and got Vaughn Grissom this offseason who I think Vaughn Grissom is like what you hoped Nick York would turn into, right? And Nick York is coming off kind of an up-and-down year this past year at A, but strong hit tool, meh defender, um, not a ton of pop. Well, Grissom's hit tool is great. You know, maybe you can kind of dream on 15 homers and he's a little more athletic than Nick York without the anchors in his shoulder. So I think with Nick York and he's been in trade talks for so long now, it feels like, or at least he's mock trades. He should be the piece you're trying to flip here. But yeah, I think there's going to still be one more arm added in. I just have a lot of concern that they're going to lock up on a trade with someone. I think it's going to be a pretty small money deal. And that's where Mike Clevenger, Michael Lorenzen, something like that, that you could say, hey, It may not be great, but we know we're going to get 25 to 30 starts in case someone can't go. All right. So the Clevenger stuff, I would be less intrigued with that. But you mentioned Cabrera in there, which I think is fascinating because with what we just referenced, all the resources they put into developing pitchers with who they brought in, especially the guy running the whole thing and Craig Breslow, that would make a lot of sense. And that's like the type of guy you would want to get. And I'm with you on York. I just feel like There's not really room for him now within the organization. And the one thing I fear about with York is some of these prospects, you can't hold on to these guys for too long. So this may be the offseason that you move on from York. So I would love a play like that, a high upside guy like Cabrera that you take a chance on rather than one of these veteran guys, because if Cabrera works out and it's first of all, that could be a huge win for the organization if Breslow and Bailey and all these guys get a guy like Cabrera, right? That would be a major win for the organization just in terms of this is something right away. We are like, hey, look at this. He came from a different organization in the Marlins. The Red Sox got him right. And we've seen this with pitchers through the years. Now, unfortunately, at times it's happened the opposite for the Red Sox where a guy like Brazier has been a mess all year. He goes over to the Dodgers and all of a sudden he's good again, right? He but got Dave Sox- Bush fired. Yeah, <laughs> really. And the Red Sox, look, they've done it before too when you think about it like Evaldi through the best if his career now, unfortunately, he's not with the organization anymore. Good for him. He's winning a ring. But that's something that would intrigue me. Now, you also mentioned Pavetta in there. And the sweeper stuff is amazing. The 28th of May is the date you reference. So if you look at pitchers with a minimum of 80 innings, starter or reliever, since that date, he was first in strikeout rate at 35.3%. So this is compelling to me because of the fact that if I'm the Red Sox and I know like Pavetta has been so up and down. I thought he was he was so awesome to watch in 2021 when they were in the playoffs, like the primal screams, even going back to the final day of that season. Remember, he had the walk off curveball against Juan Soto to get the Red Sox into the postseason. I would go to him now and see like, hey, can we get something done for a couple of years now? And now the one thing I would say about Pavetta is he may look at it and say, let me have another full year with the sweeper thing, because maybe I can get paid the following offseason. But If you think about all these Red Sox pitchers over the past three to four years, the starters, he hasn't been the best, but he's been certainly the most reliable. Like in the words of Alex Cora, he's posting every five days or when he was coming out of the bullpen. I would be interested in trying to get something done with Pavetta. I don't think it's a bad idea either. And I think the closest thing you kind of look to, and obviously Pavetta hasn't reached the heights of Lucas Giolito, but Giolito is coming off two seasons where his ERA was around five. But, you know, the Red Sox were a team willing to throw a good amount of money at him because he eats innings, right? And I think that's with Nick Pavetta, where 
if you're the Red Sox and you're kind of questioning whether it's going to be some time before, you know, this wave of starting pitching happens, because as much as I like Andrew Bailey and Justin Willard and, you know, Kyle Bodie comes in, it's going to take time for that pipeline to come through. You know, I think Zach Scott, who was part of the Red Sox front office for, you know, two decades, really, he was doing some consultant work recently looking at the Red Sox farm system. He had him third in terms of position players, 29th in terms of pitching. And I mm. think you look at double A right now. And, you know, Richard Fitz will probably get up to AAA this year, start there. But it's him, it's Hunter Dobbins, it's Wilkeman Gonzalez, like a lot of very fringe starter types that you can't really buy in. So if you look at Nick Pavetta and say, hey, we know at the very least, even if this doesn't work out, he can be this kind of high leverage reliever that shines out in that spot. I think that gives you a solid floor. And if you're the Red Sox and you're going to be kind of tight with money, try to beat the market. Because I think if he gets out there and he even posts something like a, four-ish ERA this year, he's going to get close to you know, 15, 16 million a year for three or four, and someone's not even going to think twice about it. Yeah, and too, like, in the worst-case scenario this year, if things go really south for you and Pavetta's pitching well, it's still going to be a tradable contract if he agrees to something this season, right? Because it's not like he's going to get top-tier starter money. He's just going to get... It would be a good deal for the team, at least if I'm projecting that he's going to have another good season. So I don't think that's a bad contract to have on your books. You mentioned Whitlock and I'm with you in the sense like we hear the good things about him. And I, I guess the good thing is that he's healthy this offseason. He's working out. Core is referencing you guys should see Whit right now. And Whitlock called himself the worst pitcher on this or the worst player on the staff or on the team last year. I mean, I would disagree. I'd put some other guys over him. Bearclaw, Corey Kluber, etc. I mean, he wasn't the worst, but <laughs> I just feel like they have got to just find a lane with this guy because He's been so good as a reliever. He struggled as a starter. And I'm not saying that he could never be a good starter. You got to learn how to manipulate and maneuver your way through a lineup. And he's still, at least in his major league career, even though he's not young by age, he's still young by that type of experience. The thing that I worry about with Whitlock is, can his body hold up? I know they say he looks great right now and he's healthy, but every year he's dealing with something from a physicality standpoint, some sort of an injury. So if it's me, I'd almost say, hey, there's nothing wrong if he is a top 10 reliever in Major League Baseball that can give us multiple innings. And I'm sort of leaning in that direction. I was Last season, I was cool with the experiment. But now it's like, okay, he keeps getting injured. I just want him to be a valuable member of the organization. And last year, he wasn't. He wasn't a valuable player for them. And I think with Garrett Whitlock, it'd be one thing like we saw coming out of 2022. All right, it's a hip, right? Uh, All right, scary. Your elbow barked twice in four months twice. And you know, we got a bone bruise there and then you're having, you know, some kind of inflammation, a nerve issue. Yikes. That that's not small stuff. And when you're talking about a guy in Garrett Whitlock, who already has a Tommy John underneath his belt, the truth is some guys just can't handle it. Their body can't. And I think that's why you get so frustrated with Whitlock because the way we fall or we fell in love with Garrett Whitlock wasn't those one inning, you know, situations at the very end of 2021. It was when he was going out there three innings and he was just right. ripping through. I think even back to uh, the Tigers outing early in 2022, four innings just goes out, hammers it when the Red Sox bullpen had nothing in you dream. But the hope is for someone like Garrett Whitlock, who just badly needs to get everything back on track. And I throw Tanner Houck there. We've seen what they can do in the bullpen. You had the money and the financial flexibility to make sure those guys were in those spots so that you didn't have to force them. I think Breslow, to some degree, is looking at this and saying, well, hey, with this new pitching infrastructure, look at Andrew Bailey and what he did for Kevin Gosman. Look at what he did for Carlos Rodon. Why can't even Logan Webb, right, turning him into that? Why can't Garrett Whitlock be one of those guys? 
And I'd say, listen, I think Garrett Whitlock performance-wise, there were stretches last year where he showed you he could easily be a starter. What he did against the Angels early, what, I think it was the beginning of May or late April, that was their best start at that point in the season. Then when he came back off the IL the first time, everyone's like, oh, he changed his sequencing. Now he's starting to figure it out there as well. And then another elbow injury pops up once again. The talent's there, but just because the talent's there doesn't mean you have to go down that path. I just think with the way the Red Sox are operating right now, they can't leave those stones unturned because you're not using all your money. You're not using all your assets. It has to come from somewhere. It's just, is this going to blow up in your face? Are you going to make this kid instead of, oh, well, he's just a reliever. He turns out to be a guy that you have to get out of here because you saw or, you know, you sent him to another place for two, three years in a row where he couldn't get comfortable. Use it to your advantage that you could have arguably the best bullpen in baseball, especially if you are trading Kenley Jansen. All right. It makes even more sense for Tanner Houck and Garrett Whitlock to get those reps in the bullpen. Then that's where those guys should flourish, especially like Tanner Houck. I watched him close eight for nine and saves and, you know, the summer of 2022 fired up out there. Kind of a psycho. Yeah. These guys have shown it. Don't throw it away for nothing. Yeah. And they had such a good plan with Whitlock the first year. Remember, Cora was like, hey, if he pitches two innings, he gets two days off. If he pitches three innings, he gets three days off. Or if it's just one, he gets one day off. So they had a a super planned out thing with him that season. And it just feels like over the past couple of years, it, it's tough to go from starter to reliever, not just mentality, but your body. It's just a totally different thing. So I hope they and, just land in one lane. And it's the way you're trying to turn him into a guy. I think we know Whitlock's idol is Rick Parcello. The guy's elbow was made out of rubber. He'd go out there and he'd give you seven. If he gave up five, he didn't care. He'd tip his cap. You know, that's Cy Young Award winner, Rick Porcello, by the way. Don't let me forget that, 2016. But <laughs> that's the kind of starter you're trying to make Whitlock on top of it. This isn't five and dive and, hey, let's get out of here and be happy with it. No, you want him to eat innings. And that's a whole nother component to this. There's plenty of guys who can be five and dive and you keep them healthy that way. When you're trying to push those guys to be, you know, hey, go seven innings, but you may give up four runs. That has its own weight to it in all these different ways. And this is a guy in Whitlock who I think realized I was throwing 97, 98, 99 in the bullpen. Well, everything ticks down when you have to go six, seven innings, and it's now 93, 94. All those grades come down with it. Yeah, and get back to being the guy that gets everybody to hit the ball on the ground. He hasn't been that guy the past couple of years. He was so good when he first came up or came over from the Yankees, I should say, at generating ground balls. That hasn't been the case over the past few years. All right, so... I would say one of the most positive things that came out of winter weekend was Tristan Casas. He talked about he wants to hit the ball harder. And if you look at his numbers, like, so I just took the start of May because that's when he came out of that slump through September 14th when he was injured. So the hard hit rate's still pretty good, 48%, which is 29th out of 137 qualifiers during that stretch. The average exit velocity was 36. The max was 41st. He barrel percentage is great, 14.1%, which is 18th. The launch angle is good, 15.6 degrees, 42nd. And you look at the numbers during that stretch. The walk rate was awesome, 13.2%, 14th. The isolated power was 22nd at 240. OPS, 9th, 916. The slug was 10th, 531. And the on-base percentage was 10th. Like, you can make an argument during that stretch, he was one of the 10 to 15 best hitters in all of Major League Baseball. He's obviously blessed with incredible raw power, but that quote that he gave, I was awfully impressed just because it's not like some glaring weakness that he has, right? Like say a guy like doesn't hit righties or he doesn't hit lefties. Like I got to get better against righties. And you're like, yeah, you do. You hit like 220 against righties last season. You don't hit for power. Like, okay, that makes sense. 
this is actually something that he's pretty good at. Like he hits the ball hard. It's just now he's saying I can hit the ball even harder. So to me, like, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that we're looking at a guy next season that hits 30 bombs and that is an all-star. And I do think if he does develop into that, it's a, and look, he's already shown that he can be that guy. But if he turns into an all-star, I mean, it brings a totally different dynamic to this lineup. And I also don't think it's crazy. I said this a couple of months ago that he ends up having a better offensive season than Rafael Devers, which uh, I know that Brian, sounds crazy, yes. but I think it could happen. I don't think it's crazy either. When you look at the hitter he was in, even in his first year, you know, we're talking about a guy who had a better off full over. If you look at per rate, you know, OPS plus and some of these things was already better than Rafael Devers this past year. And that was with an awful first month. That was with that awkward situation in the middle of the summer where he'd already started hitting, but core was kind of getting on him for the defense. But even that improved as the season went along here. I think Tristan Casas and I see people putting him in potential deals with the Marlins. I just throw my hands up, man. You're looking no. at the next Matt Olson. You're looking at someone who's going to be one of the best first basemen in baseball for a very long time. And to hear just that drive, and it's no slight on Rafael Devers. I don't want anyone to take it that way. But we understand Rafi lives in the DR during the offseason. He's kind of away. Tristan Casas, if you're looking for the face, the voice, who is going to represent the Boston Red Sox for the next five to 10 years, my money's on him. This guy, whether it was Trevor Story's camp, rookie development program where, you know, he's kind of mentoring Meyer, Anthony Teal, York, giving them a bat, kind of talking them through things. When the Red Sox have lacked that kind of culture, that kind of leader for quite some time now, because the days of Xander Bogarts and all those guys, even, you know, the Dustin Pedroia's of the world, David Ortiz before that, you don't have that anymore, right? And Rafael Devers is still very young as much as we look at him because he's been here for so long and he's got paid. He's still on the younger side. He's just entering his prime. Well, here you have Tristan Casas, who's stepping in to be that leader. He's a baseball junkie, as so many people talked about for so long. The guy just wants to get in and keep working and keep working. If this is the bare minimum from Tristan Casas, yeah, he could be just as dangerous as Rafael Devers. The only thing I'd say to the Red Sox, find a right-handed bat you can put between them. So, you know, they're not stuck and kind of getting beaten on a pretty regular basis here. But yeah, I think Tristan Casas is as valuable of an asset as the Red Sox have. And I'd be telling them to work on an extension this spring. But where I get a little questionable about it is if you sign him to this deal and you buy a couple years of free agency, either his AAV is going to skyrocket this year and it's going to go from, you know, the league minimum to, I don't know, 10 million or something like that. Or maybe you could work out a deal where it kicks in the following year, but that's not what typically happens when you extend a player this young. So you better, if you're waiting for this window of, you know, TL Meyer Anthony, you better start paying Tristan Casas and Brian Bayo when locking them in because that's the way you want to act. You need to start thinking like the Braves or you're going to have a lot of problems. Just going to be more and more of this as guys walk and leave. Yeah, especially if your plan now is, hey, we want to be a contender two to three years from now for the next five to six years, then it would make sense to get it's done this offseason. The other thing I would say, too, about Rafi is the defense last year, it's just inexcusable. And the problem that I have with Devers is it's not like Yoshida is just never going to be good defensively. He's terrible out there. I mean, he's got a bad arm. He's not super fast, so he's just not going to be good out there. Rafael Devers, we've seen flashes where he can play well, so he now has to be sort of a leader of this team based on the contract he has, and quite frankly, like he had a good season offensively. It could have been even better, and look, he did run into some bad luck. That's certainly true, but I hope that Devers has, like I think Devers should be top five to six 
AL MVP finisher. Like, that's the talent that he has. So we'll see if he can do that. Now, you mentioned the right-handed stuff in terms of getting a righty to go in between those guys. We thought, hey, maybe it could be Teoscar Hernandez. We'll see what if they still try to add a right-handed bat. But I do feel like now... Tyler O'Neill, we'll see if he can bounce back to what he was in 2021, but that's hoping. And I feel like the guy you need is Story, right? Because if you don't add somebody else, you think about this team last year, 24th in slug among right-handed hitters, and they were 26 in home runs from righties. And you look at Story from when he made his debut until the end of the season, 203, 144th out of 151 qualifiers. The on-base percentage was 149th. The slug was 144th. The OPS was 148th. The strikeout rate was 141st. This is a guy that the past couple of years, you look at him in terms of 94 games this past season came off the injury. Of course, 43 games. Now, the one thing is his final season in Colorado, he did hit 34 home runs. This is the healthiest he's been since he's joined the Red Sox, right? And so I totally understand that he's been dealing with all these injuries. And I would say this, even... Two years ago in 2022, he was their best hitter with runners in scoring position, like unequivocally, all the numbers would back that up. And I'm not trying to defend him. But my point with this is, if you're, you're putting a lot of pressure on him, if you're Craig Breslow, if you didn't get another right handed power hitter. So now it's almost like, hey, we're paying this guy this type of money, we have to get return our on our investment. Like, can he get back to hitting 25 home runs. I mean, 30 would be awesome, but can he give you 25 home runs? We know he's not going to hit for average, but if you play elite level defense and give some power to this lineup, that's huge for them. Like, Cassis endeavors are almost more of a given, obviously, right? These guys are the stars of the team. Story may have to be that third guy because we know Yoshida's not going to hit for power. We'll see with O'Neill. You know who I actually really do love is Abreu. Like, I just love that guy's approach at the plate. I mean, he can hit for some real power, but that's a young kid. I just feel like there's a lot of pressure on Story entering this season. And I look at Trevor Story and the defense, right? I think this is how people need to look at Trevor Story because I don't view him as the guy who maybe should be batting cleanup, right? If Or, you know, however it plays out, batting third. If Devers is hitting second, you got Story at third and Casas at fourth. You know, what he offers defensively and as a player at this point, it's the full package that you really dream on if you're the Red Sox. It's plus outs above average from when he came off the IL, which if you put on a whole season basis easily would have led all of baseball. He would have been ahead of Dansby Swanson. It was ridiculous the kind of defense he was playing. And you hope, hey, he steals 15, 20 bags. And before you know it, hey, can you clock 20 homers? I think if you're hoping Trevor Story can be that dependable righty that's going to be there every day, I'm cautious. It is a lot to put on him. And I think there is a trend here. And it's one of the reasons I was very into the idea of still bringing Justin Turner back. And we know now the Red Sox seemingly are looking at Adam Duvall. They've kind of fallen out of the Jorge Soler. Uh, sweepstakes. There's a lot of strikeouts in this lineup, and it happens very quickly. Trevor Story, a guy you could say probably will strike out 30% of the time. Connor Wong, 30% of the time. Tyler O'Neill, he's going to be right up in that conversation as well. So, you know, you got to be very careful about how many of these bats are going to be swinging and missing on a very regular basis here. You know, Jaron Duran can tend to rack up K's from time to time. Uh, and I looked at Justin Turner, and I think if you watch on a day-to-day basis, you realize how much his approach, kind of how he carried himself at the plate, was not only contagious to the rest of the team, but just offered you that mature bat, you know, backing up Devers that you didn't have to worry about. Well, now you add Adam Duvall into that mix, another guy, 30% K rate. Like, that's four guys who could be in your lineup on a day-to-day basis that are going to strike out 30% of the time. 
for a Red Sox team that was very serious about working counts this past year after struggling with that same issue in 2022. That's the first thing I would point to. And I don't think they're valuing that enough. And I understand wanting that power at Fenway and selling out. You need to improve there. But damn, I still see a role for Justin Turner on this team. They want to rotate at bats, be my guess. But you still need some help at first base and third base to give guys a breather. Yeah, and the thing with Turner, too, is he would have these at-bats where he's not even trying to put the, like, so many pitches, he's not even trying to pull it, put it in play, just follow it off. Eight, nine pitch at-bat, it wears down the starting pitcher, you get to the bullpen easier that way, and he's he's a veteran, too, like, he, I know the team stunk, but he was a leader of that team. I just wonder if maybe their hesitation there is just the defense, like, hey, remember, like, they started playing him a lot, and then he got injured, like, I think but, that's... Like- pro- the guy got to second base and he's like making these ridiculous plays. You're like, how the hell is anyone doing this? Like at first base. And I I thought he was pretty meh at first base, but if you want to give Rafi a day or Casas and shift these guys through, and I do think the one thing, if you were to tell me, you know, Tyler, what do you worry about Tristan Casas? It's still health. That is still a very big thing for me because he dealt with a lot of injuries in the minors. Last year, we saw the shoulder injury end his season early. You know, if you lose Tristan Casas for a chunk of the season, Pack it up. Good luck. You know, start looking forward to next year. People already are, but it becomes even more extreme at that point. Um, I, I think those are the things that I get a little uncomfortable about. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And I just hope that we get and this is like pathetic to say. I hope we have a competitive team for the majority of the season because we haven't had that for the past couple of years. We shouldn't be saying that as Red Sox fans, but this is what the ownership group has kind of they've put us in this position. All right. Before we let you go, Milliken. Some interesting comments from Alex Cora about his future. We just saw Craig Council get paid. Cotillo had an article about that. And Alex Cora is a more established manager than Craig Council. He got something won- on his finger. Yeah, he won a World Series. So your prediction, 2025, is Alex Cora the manager of the Red Sox? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to go right now now. I hate to say that, and I think Alex Cora is one of the best managers in the entire sport. And I was someone, if you heard me talk a lot in October, I was very heavy on the narrative. I think Cora has a deal done maybe even before spring training because I thought he was going to be very heavily involved in this process of hiring whoever it was going to be. And at the end of the day, you picked Cora over Heim, right? So you were going to move forward with the guy you picked, hoping that you could build something. Cora had to friggin' tell them. I don't want the GM job. Think about that. As an ownership group, (laughs) you had to have your manager say, I'm good on that. That's how much you like that guy. And they do consider him family. But what I do know about Alex Cora is if he had an issue with the way Heim was operating, and maybe he realizes some of those feelings were a little misdirected now. Well, hey, he's going to feel the same way he does. And if the Dodgers, and there is a little bit of a stickiness to that relationship because of the Astros cheating scandal. But if they go get their ass handed to them in the first round of the playoffs and it's another disappointing year, you're telling me they won't come calling to a former player and say, hey, you know, we'll we'll pay you. We look at this roster we have. We can't afford to underperform. There's teams that are going to call the thing I would put in the Red Sox favor, though, and it can be easy for us to lose that while we're sitting here talking about the issues, even spending what the Red Sox are. That is still, you know top 10, top 12, if you look at what they spent last year. If it's even less, you may fall farther. There's only so many teams that can offer that same kind of thing. And I look at the Yankees and what they have with Aaron Boone. He is so tight with Aaron Judge. That is a very important relationship. I feel like things would have to go pretty wrong for them not to move off of Boone because I think if they were going to, it was this past season that they should have done it. There's only so many spots for a guy like Alex Cora, but I'm very scared that if the Red Sox don't take a step forward this year, 
he's going to be looking for a place to win because I don't think, you know, unless the Red Sox have like a 2021 season, and I'm not saying go to the ALCS, but they're in it until the very last day. I expect another bridge type year next year. Yeah, and he's going to want to actually manage in the postseason, right? I mean, you think about, too, the Dodgers thing, having a smooth over the situation with the Astros. He also started his career as a member of the Dodgers. And at that point, if you're a Dodgers fan, you're probably sick of Dave Roberts and that team flaming out early where you would welcome Alex Cora. And I, I just wish we could get some postseason baseball. I love it when, like, Cora is texting the guy, spikes on, the starting <laughs> pitcher, spikes on. like, And he's a great postseason manager, right? I mean, I know, I know you could say stuff, but you think about, like, that race series, he was putting guys in there. He's putting lefties out there to get Meadows out of the game for later on. Like he was strategically doing that. And Kevin Cash would take the bait every time because he knew the Rays were so into their numbers from a lefty righty perspective, the platoons. And Cora's just like, all right, let me get Meadows out of the game now so we don't have to see him later. Even 2018, you look at what he was able to do with those rotation arms and saying, yeah, we're short in the bullpen. Craig Kimbrell's a friggin' disaster right now. Oh, yeah. Watch, watch me piece this thing together as we turn David Price into this guy who's going to come out of the bullpen and save the day. And Chris Sale, I'm going to plug you in here. I'm going to plug you in here. It was amazing to watch him cook in that kind of scenario. And while I think the ALCS was probably his toughest moment in 2021, like you said, you don't get there without Alex Cora and how he managed that staff. And the last thing I throw in on Cora, this is not Terry Francona, okay? This is not Tony LaRussa. He's not going to do this into his late 60s, into his 70s. Corey has told you, probably the next deal is the last deal. Then he's going to go on and enjoy ret- retirement, go raise his kids, do all that. Well, okay, that sense of urgency to win grows even larger. This isn't someone who can sit around another two, three years and say, screw it. Yeah, I'm with you, man. And yeah, the one thing I'd say about that Astros series is I wouldn't have let sale pitch Alvarez again because that's probably the moment right yeah like I understand the logic behind the game is like hey let's have the lefty although Alvarez now just hits everything it doesn't really matter you can you could throw out like Greg Maddox and he'll probably hit Greg Maddox <laughs> at this point in time but well Greg Maddox wouldn't pitch to him remember Greg Maddox said he wouldn't pitch to Barry Bonds but yeah the, the th- like once you get in that game and you realize like Alvarez is on sale that's the time you get to make the change but yeah he's been such a great postseason manager I just hope Milliken we get relevant baseball and i'm concerned after what we heard at winter weekend all right that is tyler milliken from the sports hub the name redacted pod milliken thank you so much for the time man we really appreciate it of course of course i hope next time we're here we have some more positive stuff to talk about than being upset about ownership and the outlook of the team yeah don't hold your breath man (laughs) welcome back into off the pike great stuff there with tyler milliken always enjoy chatting about the socks with Milliken, we do share our confidence in Tristan Casas. Unfortunately, the rest of the team, major question marks entering the season. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, fun night, man. I got to say it. Bees win. Celts win. Kyrie lost. So it was a fun night. And I, like I was saying earlier, I mean, I don't know. Do you agree with me or disagree with me? Like, I don't, I'm not as angry with Kyrie anymore. Not that like I, I like the guy or I ever want to be friends with the guy, but He's like irrelevant to me. It's like he doesn't exist. No, I had the exact same thought, actually. I was like, oh, yeah, there's Kyrie Irving. Like, doing the same stuff he always does. Like, he's could still make incredible baskets. I was like, oh, yeah, it's Kyrie. But uh, I think I'm officially over him as well. Like, maybe it'd be a different story if he was on the Heat or the Lakers. But off in Dallas, he just, he's out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, like, if he was on a good team, it, you're right. Like, the Heat, that would be like, okay, we still dislike Kyrie. If he was on the Bucks, obviously they have Dame, so they wouldn't do that. But a team like that, or Philly, 
like a legit contender that could be a threat to the Celtics. Yeah. But now it's like, okay, he's the sec. Like, I don't understand how he got to this point in his career. So he wanted to get away from LeBron. And look, I'm not getting into all this stuff off the court because obviously that's a whole, that's a whole eight podcast if we really wanted to do that. But he gets away from LeBron because he wants his own team. And after two years in Boston, he decides, hey, I don't want my own team. So he forms a super team with Durant. He's things go south in Brooklyn. Now he's playing and he's the second guy to the most ball dominant player in the entire league. And he's the sidekick <laughs> to that guy. Aren't we where we started with Kyrie, but with a worse team? Like when he was playing with the Cavs, they were in the finals every year. You have the second greatest player in the history of the sport in LeBron. James. I don't want to have a whole argument about that, but <laughs> one of the top five players in the history of the game. Like I wouldn't put him ahead of Jordan, but that's a different conversation. But you get my point. The greatest player of his yeah. generation now you're playing on a Dallas team that's not nearly as talented. Like, I don't know. It just feels like he's back where he started. It's just like with a different organization. And then like they're leaking all this stuff, him and his camp, not even leaking, talking about how he wanted to be a Laker a couple of weeks ago when they're playing the Lakers. It's like, dude, get over it, man. Like the, part of the reason you're not there is you. Now I've given Kyrie my energy. I don't know why. I just said earlier, he's irrelevant to me. That's true. He still occupies a little bit of our brain, I guess, but I think he's incredibly lucky to be playing for the Mavericks of all teams like like not that they're the best team ever but he sh- he he would be you know exiled to Portland or something the way he acts in the in the league I feel like the reason he's in Dallas is because no one else wants him but at least he's on a somewhat relevant team so I think he should be lucky considering he like you said he plays himself off every single team no one else wants to bother with him so at least he's playing with you know an all-NBA guy one of the weirdest careers in NBA history seriously totally. I mean that guy has had a bizarre career all right, Jamie, before we go to the night, before the night, I mentioned off the top the two performances we got from the big guys. Yeah. You got a 60-point performance, sixty. what was it, 62 to be exact, from Carl Anthony Towns, and Embiid had 70. So obviously Embiid having 70 is more impressive than Carl Anthony Towns <laughs> having, let me just double check to make sure I have this correct. Yeah, 62. So he had 10 threes. He was 10 of 15 from deep, 21 of, of 35 from the floor. But what's what's more impressive in Bede scoring 70 points? And this is the anniversary, as I mentioned, of Kobe's 81 or Carl Anthony Towns <laughs> scoring 62 and his team lost to Charlotte. What's more impressive? I, I think given the Wolves' record as like the top of the West, I, I'm going with that as more impressive. Yeah, it, it's hard to see without seeing the actual tape. Like, are they just throwing him the ball every single possession? Like, I just I don't understand how how this works that you score that. Many, and like, how do you shoot? 66% from deep and still lose. So I, I need to watch some of this tape to see how this is physically possible. The Charlotte, no less. Well, and Anthony Edwards didn't score in the first half. What? Yeah, did not score a point in the first half. It, it was It's a bizarre game. And I'm not saying I was paying attention to it super close, but I'm watching the highlights on Sports uh, on Sports Center. It's just like every time they come down the court, he's just launching another three. Like, it's pretty crazy. And then there's a couple of times where he just... But they're they're going in, I guess. Yeah, there's a couple of times where he just goes to the offensive glass and the, the... Charlotte's a tiny team. Like, they're not big at all. So he's just getting rebounds underneath there and putting them back in. That's totally bizarre. One thing, Brian, call me crazy, but you think there's anything to about the fact that it's on Kobe's 81 uh, anniversary? I feel like every single player absolutely adores Kobe Bryant in the league right now. You know, our generation. Going for it. You think they're going for it on tonight, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I got to think so. They're gunning for it, man. 81 points, 70 points for a center. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's cool. There's a stat out there tonight. I wish, I wish I could give credit to who it is, but let me see if I can find it right here. But basically, Embiid is averaging like the most. Uh, he what like he was the only guy that was ahead of him was Wilt Chamberlain in in terms of how many points he has in minutes. Like he's averaging, he has more points than minutes played. Like that's nearly impossible to do. So he's more than a point per minute guy. Wow. It's amazing for a guy who doesn't, you know, he's not hitting a million three pointers either as a center. I mean, he hits some, but that's even more. You'd think like maybe Curry or someone could do that, but that's amazing. I think he may have only hit one tonight. He had a million free throws. Yeah. And he, they, okay, so here it is. Actually, it's Stat Muse, so I can give it the proper credit. 1,156 points, 1,096 minutes. Averaging the most points per minute in NBA history. So now he's wow. past Will Chamberlain when it comes to that. And thinking about the NBA that Will Chamberlain was playing in the 60s when he's just like a foot taller than everyone. It's amazing that he has a better stats than him. Well, I was looking this up the other day, like, or a couple weeks ago, and the Celtics getting ready to play the 76ers is he is like almost in, it's like a layup for him. It's almost impossible for him to miss those <laughs> long mid-rangers. Those long mid-range jumpers, like, he hits them every time. It's yeah. crazy to me. Like, he doesn't even take the amount of shots that he used to at the rim, right? I mean, certainly he can still hit those shots, but his shooting, like, his mid-range shooting is absolutely insane right now. So his long mid-rangers, he's 93 of 175 on the season. So, what, 53% around there. So, 53% in... The shot that is considered to be the most efficient, inefficient shot in the NBA. Like, you're not supposed to take that. MB just hits it every time. Like, it's a layup. Now, the one good thing for the Celtics is they match up well with Embiid historically. And they I usually was, own Philadelphia say, in the playoffs. But Yeah, it's crazy that, I don't know, I just I, he doesn't occupy that space in my brain of being, like, completely terrified of the way LeBron or even Giannis and stuff or Curry, too. It's like, he just... Right. For whatever reason, he doesn't do that against the Celtics. And even when he does, we win. Right. And even like Harden had those big games last year against the Seas. Oh. The one game that, remember when Embiid didn't play in game one? He went off. Yeah. Harden had a couple of games like that. Oh, I should mention this before we go. Bill Belichick is not getting the Tennessee Titans job. Brian Callahan mm. got named the head coach of the Tennessee Titans. <laughs> As if Bill was going to go there, right? Like that was not <laughs> an option. Not an option for. This is kind of crazy to me, man. Like they moved on from. Rabel, who's an established good coach, to get a coordinator. Like, and look, Callahan may turn out to be a really good coach, but it's just like, man, like, kind of had a good. Co- I know that situation got ugly at the end, but you had a good coach. Like, moving on from Rabel to me, it's like I don't really understand that. I think it's it. It reminds me a bit of what you and Milliken were talking about, like when the owners are sort of butting heads with someone who's like too. It's almost like Rabel was too powerful. Similarly, maybe to like Dombrowski, where they just like don't want to deal with like a power struggle. That's a good point. And Vrabel probably doesn't have the patience for a rebuild. You know, young quarterback now, Will Levis, he probably doesn't want to be part of a rebuild. But the Tennessee Titans job is now Phil. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, brother. Thank you, Brian. Go bees. Go seas. Damn right. Go Sox, man. Cue the duck boats for the Sox. Full throttle. No comment. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in. Six once. Six one seven three nine six seven one seven two. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Sturdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in